0: In the Shenandoah Valley and Peninsula Campaigns of 1862, Union and Confederate soldiers faced unfamiliar and harsh environmental conditions, which contributed to escalating disease and diminished morale. Using a wealth of personal accounts, medical sources, newspapers, and government documents, today's speaker reveals how these soldiers strove to maintain their physical and mental health by combating their deadliest enemy, nature. To survive, soldiers forged informal networks of health care based on pre-war civilian experience and adopted a universal set of self-care habits. And they periodically had to adjust their ideas of manliness, class values, and race to the circumstances at hand. Catherine Shively Meyer received a BA in English with a concentration in poetry from the University of California, Berkeley, and a PhD from the University of Virginia. She is an assistant professor of history at VCU, where she teaches courses on the Civil War and Reconstruction, American military history from 1600 to 1900, and antebellum America. Before coming to VCU, Katie was assistant professor of history at the University of Scranton for three years. She's the author of Nature's Civil War, Common Soldiers in the Environment in 1862 Virginia, winner of the inaugural 2011 Edward M. Kaufman Prize in Military History, and is currently writing a biography of Confederate General and Lost Cause Architect Jubal Early. Please join me in a warm VHS welcome for Katie Meyer.
1: Thank you for that kind introduction. On May 22nd, 1862, New York artillerist George Perkins lay in camp on the Virginia Peninsula, listening to the thuds of hail, as big as walnuts and some as big as marbles. Though his little tent stood the storm well, the private was sodden. And over the course of the night, he developed a raging fever, which he attributed to lying in the rain. The next morning, he left the ranks without permission, he straggled, to attempt to recover in a barn. The barn was filled with a number of Michiganites, also straggling, and also rats. There, Perkins developed a mysterious rash, probably scabies caused by mites that burrow into the skin and deposit their eggs. A few days later, still sick and now furiously itching, Perkins returned to his battery a shade of his former self. On May 27th, he scribbled in his diary, rained all last night and part of the day, sick with no care. On May 29th, cloudy and rainy, sick all the time. And finally, on June 4th, 1862, drizzly and rainy all day, longed very much for home. In sum, Perkins' illness, compounded by the weather and the taxing work of soldiering, had worn down his spirits. Now for anybody who has ever pored over Civil War soldier letters, diaries, and memoirs, Perkins' diary should sound all too familiar. For all of sc- scholars' traditional interests in soldier ideology, in race, in politics, and even combat, The bulk of soldier accounts focused far more often on mundane fare, about the weather, about other environmental factors, about their daily health, and about their spirits. Indeed, soldiers frequently linked the three, environment, uh, physical, and mental health, insisting that the deadliest killers of the Civil War, which were diarrhea, malaria, and typhoid, were caused by nature, and that fluctuations in their morale were often caused by environmental factors. So, this afternoon, I'll discuss with you why Civil War soldiers linked health and nature. Um, Remember, keeping in mind, this is the period before the discovery of germ theory and of vector diseases. Those would be discovered in the 1870s and 80s. We'll talk about the fact that soldiers developed practices, which I call self-care, to combat the environmental effects on their health. And we'll see that these ranged from something as simple as locating clean water to the dramatic um, constructing elaborate beds that would put the princess and the pea to shame. These techniques were often a group effort. Soldiers taught and aided each other. They relied upon newspapers and civilians at home and at the front to transmit and glean advice. Uh, many of the civilians near the front they relied upon were women and African Americans, which pushed some of their boundaries um, in terms of what, uh, in terms of their culture. And what resulted was ultimately an unofficial network of care outside of the medical departments. We will be focusing primarily on common soldiers today. Um, and by common soldiers I mean men ranked from private through non-commissioned officer. We'll be looking at soldiers on both sides, Union and Confederate, and we'll be looking at a case study of the Shenandoah Valley and Peninsula campaigns in 1862 Virginia, which were um, concurrent with each other, although the Peninsula campaign was a bit longer. We won't be discussing surgery um, in the talk, but if you're interested in surgery, we can always discuss it in the Q&A. It's important for us to explore this overlooked aspect of soldier experience because at war's end, Two-thirds of mortalities, of soldier mortalities, were from disease rather than battle wounds. And morale was critical to maintaining an army's fighting spirit. Now, as a military historian, I like a bit of organization, so you know what you're getting into with me. So here's a brief overview of what we'll be discussing together. First, we'll look at antebellum, or pre-war conceptions of disease and treatment, and how these ideas penetrated Um, to the lower classes and to those men who would become Civil War soldiers. Second, we'll explore how soldiers experienced the hostile environment of war and its impacts on their mental and physical health in 1862 Virginia. Third, we'll look at the official army care available to Confederates and Federals in 1862 and why soldiers deemed it wanting. Fourth, we will um, look at the fact that, given that soldiers felt their official systems uh, were not capable of um, accommodating their health needs, we'll look at how they actively adopted self care techniques and constructed informal networks of care. Finally, we'll discuss how soldier self care practices clashed with Army discipline, causing tension between common soldiers and command. Now, I feel like for some of you in the front row, you can't can't really see me. I'm a little bit on the shorter side. It's a little like the voice of God coming down. <laughs> so hopefully you'll be even more convinced for not being able to see me in the front row. <laughs> All right, so to get started here, um, healthcare in the period before the Civil War was characterized by sort of three general trends that we can keep in mind. A profusion of confusing disease theories because like I said, germ theory, vector disease still on the horizon. Secondly, popular involvement in healing, which we'll be discussing. And then third, a pulling away from professional medicine toward more individualized and democratized care that would not be easily shrugged off by citizen soldiers when they went to war. So beginning with a sense of professional ideas, professional or we might say traditional physicians in America And these are the men who would largely go on to be Civil War surgeons um, for reasons we'll discuss in a moment. They suffered from a number of obstacles. Uh, We'll we'll say obstacles. They had widely varied training. um, For country surgeons, um, oftentimes they would have no sort of formal medical training. Instead, it would be an apprenticeship system. To unstandardized and um, sparse medical college education. Those physicians who had had the best training available at the time um, normally had uh, gone to France at some point and received a French education. So very widely and unstandardized kind of medical education. Our country was also in a transitional period in disease theory. And the main theory still remained that the body was composed of four humors, blood, yellow bile, black bile, and phlegm that needed to be balanced in order to maintain health. And I'm sure some of you have heard um, of this before. To explain mental health, the fluids were sometimes linked to temperaments, sanguine, choleric, melancholic, and phlegmatic. And as I'm sure many of you know, the way that doctors balance the humors, I hope you all just had lunch, you're really going to enjoy this, um, is by inciting diarrhea, vomiting, extracting pus, or, of course, bloodletting. Bloodletting is the most well-known aspect of this kind of treatment. Um, I should mention that bloodletting was going slightly out of favor amongst physicians by the mid-19th century, so at least there was that. Physicians also tended to treat disease with high doses of often mercury-based medications. And as some of you may know, over time, um, too much mercury can lead to madness, irritability, bleeding, and uh, loss of skin or appendages. So some pretty nasty side effects. These treatments, these interventions, were known as heroic. Um, And I think you can uh, imagine why. Um, They produced visible results of healing. Um, in short, many of the professional treatments were often worse than the diseases themselves. Other popular professional explanations of disease and mental problems were equally problematic for patients. For instance, the theory of hereditarianism posited that you inherited certain mental and physical characteristics from your parents, particularly your mother, and particularly in sensitive moments such as conception, Um, birth and breastfeeding and you can imagine for women this put them under particular scrutiny. Further, this was a period in which phrenology thrived, which again I'm sure many of you are familiar with, the idea that your mental makeup and disposition could be determined by measuring your skull. Now there was more than just a whiff of class-based assumptions to these professional theories. The middle to upper classes consider themselves superior in morality and, therefore, less likely to contract certain diseases and mental ailments. These shaky understandings of disease meant that professional doctors weren't particularly adept at rescuing Americans from the clutches of death. Indeed, by mid-century, the average lifespan had declined to around one's mid-40s. And that's partially because of cities, the growth of cities and city epidemics. Now, because traditional medicine was not particularly reliable or did not have a special claim to being reliable, and this was the Jacksonian era of reform, professional medicine found itself under attack from alternative practitioners. Um, Just to name a few examples, homeopaths, herbal and dietary specialists, and the hygiene movement. Indeed, by the 1830s, homeopaths had successfully persuaded most of the states to repeal their licensing laws. In effect, anybody could be a doctor, very Jacksonian. And I'll just mention as a side note, the American Medical Association was established in 1847 in response to some of these attacks on professional reputation. Um, If you look at the original rules, it it stresses the fact that uh, people should only rely on traditional doctors, that they should scorn um, alternative practitioners. And I'll also mention that the AMA was active and fairly successful in barring homeopaths from the ranks um, during the Civil War. So very few surgeons were alternative practitioners. Most were traditional. Now lay people, those are the people we're most concerned with because they would become common soldiers. Your average lay person was used to making case-by-case choices about whether to call upon a traditional or an alternative practitioner. However, more often than not, when he became ill, he was treated at home, usually by female family members. Um, female family members would rely upon domestic manuals of health cures. And here is probably the most famous one in America, Gunn's Domestic Medicine. These domestic manuals uh, purported to treat everything from cancer to hysteria, uh, many times using herbals, uh, herbal supplements. Uh, but sometimes do-it-yourself bloodletting. Women also relied upon personal recipe books that they clipped from newspapers and traded around social circles and passed down from generation to generation. Average Americans almost never visited a hospital before the Civil War. Hospitals were more akin to urban almshouses for people who were poor, um, didn't have family, or were maybe itinerant wandering around the country. One thing that almost all Americans could agree on, whether they were a traditional doctor, an alternative practitioner, or a layperson, was that a large number of diseases, usually um, diarrheal or fever-based diseases, um, were caused by environmental factors and um, some mental illnesses as well, such as hysteria. The idea here was that whether Miasmas wafting off of swamps, bodies, or garbage, um, or certain climates and regions such as the south, um, including Virginia, uh, conducted disease, and this was an idea confirmed by lived experience, because when people moved into southern areas, they often became ill, particularly in the summers, and we now know that to be because of mosquitoes. All in all, this was the antebellum health experience soldiers would take with them to war, a mistrust of the professional sphere of medicine for some decent reasons, and also an inexperience with it, to be frank, a preference for self-reliance and personalized home care, and also a preference for disease theory that was confirmed by lived experience, so this environmental of disease theory was the most appealing and made the most sense to your average layperson. We've now gotten to the wars. It's going to get exciting. When Civil War soldiers first gathered in camp, they found their bodies immediately under attack. Roughly 50% of new recruits succumbed instantly to contagious diseases. Things like diphtheria, smallpox, scarlet fever, which were contemporarily called crowd diseases. This is because the majority of Americans still hailed from rural areas. And also because at the beginning of the Civil War, surgeons made very haphazard attempts to examine recruits for fitness. This is something they came under attack for later. However, we're going to fast forward to the year 1862 to look at the next phase of soldier seasoning, which soldiers believed involved nature. Um, We're going to look specifically at the Shenandoah Valley and Peninsula campaigns in 1862 Virginia as case studies. And for our purposes today, to not get us too far off track, you don't need to know too much about the actual military campaigns themselves other than a few things. First of all, Um, The Shenandoah Valley uh, campaign had a fairly rapid pace of marching, Um, in in particular for Stonewall Jackson's troops. Stonewall Jackson um, marched his men somewhere around 650 miles in around three months. So very rapid pace there. Um, Although I should mention Jackson was facing three separate Union armies. So they did slightly less marching, right, because they were fragmented in the valley. But those three Union armies were pathetically undersupplied, right? So that, that's that's the most important information to know about the Shenandoah Valley Campaign for the purposes of this talk. The Peninsula Campaign, on the other hand, you had Union General McClellan facing down Johnston, and this was a very sluggish rate of campaign. Um, as many of you know, uh, McClellan specialized in moving slowly, and Johnston <laughs> specialized in retreating. Um, and this meant... A very slow rate of campaign for soldiers, um, so a lot of sort of festering in swamps, um, in filthy water, um, and not moving camps as often as would have been helpful. Um, As many of you know, Robert E. Lee uh, replaced Johnston um, in in June, um, when he inaugurated in late June, the Seven Days Campaign. That was a bit of a more rapid um, pace. Uh, to the end of the Peninsula Campaign. So keep all, uh, keep all of that in mind um, as we talk about this today. I think more germane to what we're discussing um, is the idea, the contemporary ideas about the Shenandoah Valley and the Peninsula. The Shenandoah Valley was considered to be essentially a health Eden in the mid 19th century. Uh, Folks went there to soak in the waters, the spas. um, They went there to breathe in the mountain air. Um, This was considered a very healthy retreat. And in fact, um, some Southerners who lived on the seacoast, rich plantation owners, would abandon their plantations in the summer, leaving it to African Americans who they believed were hardier um, and could withstand Southern summers. They'd go to places like the Shenandoah Valley where it was mountainous and they could breathe in fresh air. So there was an idea that the valley was healthy, And the peninsula, um, swampy as it was, was considered a a not healthy location, a place that you would go and probably contract some kind of fever or diarrhea. So these provide an interesting um, point of comparison with one another. Now, I think I put up a little map, although I'm not really sure this audience (laughs) needs this map, just in case you're from out of the area and don't know uh, where the Shenandoah Valley is and the peninsula in Civil War terms um, is this location here that leads up to Richmond. As it turned out, soldiers on both sides in both areas, as consistent with their antebellum views, believed that the most debilitating diseases they suffered in these two locations were caused by the environment. They commonly cited weather, seasonal shifts, miasmas, water, and terrain, as causing such illnesses as diarrhea, Malaria, typhoid, dysentery, rheumatism, ague, headaches, sore throat, etc. As one Pennsylvania cavalryman stationed in the valley put it, quote, there is nothing in our mode of life to injure our health but exposure to all kinds of weather. Sometimes we have to stay out all night, and the ground is so muddy that we cannot walk fast without getting our feet wet and consequently cold. So weather turned out to be the number one complaint about disease origins in the Shenandoah Valley. On the peninsula, here we have a Virginian on the peninsula. He described, service was arduous and disagreeable. In the muddy trenches or back in the woods, lying on the rain-soaked ground or marching along the cut-up and muddy roads caused no little sickness among the troops. So the most commonly cited environmental problem on the peninsula was the swampy terrain and what they believed were miasmas wafting off of it. They also connected environment to low morale in both places. Homesickness, despair, loneliness, those were the types of words they used. And I should mention that low, these, homesickness, loneliness, these things had real effects on soldier performance, so it was very important. Um, some men would refuse to get up in the morning. Some men would drink first thing in the morning and all day long. Um, Some men straggled, some men disobeyed orders, so this was a very important part of being an effective soldier. One man wrote of the heat, toilsome marches are not so bad as lying hour after hour on the bare ground in a roasting sun. One loses all patience and suffers in body and mind. Another explained melancholically, I feel very sad, more so than I ever did before, For I feel as though I shall never see my brothers again. They are coming from a northern climate into a warm and unhealthy one. The heat and water will affect them, I know." Further, soldiers did verbally cling to their antebellum ideas that the valley was healthier than the peninsula. Um, However, uh, they continued to describe illnesses caused by the environment in both places, In the official records um, of the Union, the Confederate official records um, burned in Richmond in 1865, so you have to do sort of scattered regimental records um, on the Confederate side. But just looking at the Union side, here you can see that soldiers tended to be sicker in the valley in the springtime and sicker on the peninsula in the summertime. And this is indeed what soldier accounts revealed as well. Um, And again, soldiers said that the reason they were sick in the valley in the spring was because of the uh, weather. And in the peninsula, they believed it was the miasma. But of course, it was really the mosquitoes. Something to bear in mind here is that wartime Virginia was simply not the same as peacetime Virginia. Virginia had grown more harmful under the circumstances of army life and exposure. Mobilization and combat dug up and disturbed the ground, as you can see. Um, very well in this particular picture of Yorktown. These kinds of ditches collected water and, of course, attracted mosquitoes, which, unbeknownst to the men, carried malaria. And the dead bodies of men and animals after a battle attracted flies, of course, who transported disease on their tiny feet as they dropped from rotting flesh to latrines to food. Further, it's always important to remember that armies were mobile cities with minimal infrastructures for disposing of waste and providing clean water. In 1862, the Union Army of the Potomac was the second largest southern city to New Orleans, wherever it roamed, while the Army of Northern Virginia was twice the size of Civil War Richmond. Now, Regulations did mandate that latrines be about 100 to 150 paces away from camps. But especially early on, soldiers didn't always use the latrines. Um, They were often embarrassed about the cultural shift um, to using these kinds of open um, uh, facilities. And in addition, rain, when it rained, it simply washed out the latrines right into camp. Very unhealthful environment. Let's talk a bit about um, the official healthcare systems in 1862 because soldier health was supposed to be supported by a sprawling military healthcare system. But soldiers viewed military medicine as deficient and even frightening, especially in this early period of the war before significant improvements were achieved. Most soldiers, as I mentioned, had little experience with traditional doctors who were now um, largely their surgeons and the soldiers faced heightened scrutiny for their illnesses. Now, if you were ill, you had to present yourself at sick roll after breakfast to be examined. If you weren't visibly encumbered, you risked being labeled a malingerer. If you did receive treatment, it would often be a medicine that the men complained made them feel sicker than when they had begun. Um, It's worth noting that The quality of Civil War surgeons, especially early on, uh, varied, um, even by Civil War era standards. Um, Some surgeons were even just your average citizens who had applied to local politicians uh, for commissions, and they ended up as surgeons, and they had little to no experience. Um, Both sides also faced critical shortages in medicines. Um, I mentioned the Union Valley situation was very poor in terms of supplies. And the Confederacy suffered from a lack of medicines for the entire war. Um, Something like 98% of chemical manufacturers were in the Union at the start of the war. Quite a deficiency to overcome. Now just to give a quick story, one of my favorite stories from Sick Roll. Um, A surgeon described the fact that one day at Sick Roll, He only had two types of medicine right, because of the shortages. So in one pocket, he had a ball of opium. In the other pocket, he had a ball of blue mass, which is mercury. He'd ask the soldier who came before him, do you have diarrhea or are you constipated? And if the soldier said the former, he got the opium. If he said the latter, he got the mercury. If he had something else, well, too bad. Now in terms of hospitals, very few soldiers had any experience with hospitals before the war. Regimental hospitals were often tents, local private houses, or just an open field when things got overcrowded. So here's an example of a private home that was turned into regimental hospital. And here's an example of um, one of these kind of open air um, locations when you have overflow. Now, if you were gravely ill, you might be removed to the general hospital, which was particularly frightening to Civil War soldiers. We always have to keep in mind that Civil War soldiers were recruited locally and their regiments were familiar faces from home. So going to hospital meant that you had to be removed from your friends to strangers. Rumors buzzed through the ranks in 1861 through 1862, about patients so neglected by hospital workers that their feet were allowed to freeze and rats gnaw them off. Wow. Now, this is certainly unfair to hospital workers, uh, but it shows that the soldiers were terrified of going to these um, new hospitals. Hospital workers did tend to be less sympathetic than family members had been, um, you know, based on antebellum home care. Many of the hospital workers were, again, of the middle classes or upper classes. And they policed soldier suffering to adhere to values of cheerfully bearing up under duress and often blamed soldier ailments on the soldier's own immoderate behavior. So one of the most common accusations was that soldiers were spending their paychecks on what were called delicacies. So foods like cakes and sweets and this is why they all had diarrhea. This was a very common middle class explanation. In addition to the medical departments being rather frightening and ineffective from the soldier perspective, military medicine also suffered from structural problems on both sides. Military healthcare was, in fact, extremely fragmented and bureaucratic, involving more than one department. The various wings often did not effectively communicate with one another. Sanitation, for instance, was reliant on officers properly properly implementing army regulations, Um, The regulations, first of all, were not very clear on how to impose sanitation, and second of all, many of the officers at this point in the war were volunteers themselves and still learning what were the proper regulations. Generals were responsible for decisions about where to place their armies and where to make soldier camps, and they would receive input from regimental surgeons, um, you know, things such as... Um, shall we put this camp upon a mountain on high ground in a swamp near fresh water, etc.? However, those types of decisions were always subservient to military imperatives for the most part. Um, so health was one concern, but it was a lesser concern than waging your campaign. Supplies and food with vast implications for soldier health were left to the quartermasters and commissary departments. For instance, a lack of shoes made one vulnerable to hookworm, which enters the body through the feet and causes diarrhea. Or a lack of fruits and vegetables makes one susceptible to scurvy. And in fact, there were massive scurvy outbreaks on both sides in July of 1862. So in short, there was no simple solution to the problem of illness in the ranks that according to Union official records, soared at times to over 30% of a given army, and according to my calculations, um, which uh, accounted for those soldiers who were turned away from sick roll, but who were actually ill, um, if you read their accounts, it was more like 40%. Also according to my calculations, those soldiers who suffered from low morale reached around 20%, where official records did not address mental health beyond the most severe cases such as insanity, suicide, or what was contemporarily termed nostalgia. This was considered a potentially fatal case of homesickness and had accompanying physical symptoms like headache, uh, diarrhea, uh, fever, et cetera. Yet medical care was gradually improving in 1862 on both sides. Um, Both the Confederacy and the Union began to construct more and improved hospitals. The Union in the new European pavilion style which improved sanitation The Army of the Potomac benefited from a new medical director, Jonathan Letterman, um, who excelled in ambulance evacuation and also improved rations and hygiene. And the Union also um, benefited from the effects of the U.S. Sanitary Commission, a civilian aid organization who collaborated with the U.S. Medical Department to inspect sanitation and environmental conditions in the soldier camps to improve them. The Confederacy had no... um, comparable organization, although they did have individual and local ladies' aid associations, which sent um, supplies and raised money for Confederate troops. Now, because soldiers judged the official health care systems insufficient to their needs, being good Jacksonian Americans, they took matters into their own hands. Falling back on the ideas and care, they had been used to before the war broke out. Soldier attempts to combat the environmental threats they perceived to their mental and physical health followed certain trends and were the same for both Confederates and US soldiers. And in the interest of time, I'm just going to provide you with a few examples. They sought out clean water to drink, not because they knew about bacteria, they did not, but because it tasted more palatable. They also boiled water and dug wells, Further, they bathed and washed their clothes as often as possible, which sometimes required straggling if they were on a heavy marching campaign, like the Shenandoah Valley Campaign. If they waited for mandates to bathe from above, sometimes they would not be able to wash their bodies for weeks at a time or change their clothes. Cleaning their bodies and drinking fresh water not not only helped soldiers feel healthier and helped to mitigate exposure, um, such as sunstroke, but it also noticeably improved soldier spirits. Explained one Virginian, bathing was a rare privilege. We would soon forget our miseries and enjoy the beautiful scenery spread out before us. This is one of my favorite images of Civil War soldiers. <laughs> they just look so pleased with their bathing. Foraging, soldiers frequently forage for fruits and vegetables to supplement their rations. There is some sense that fruits and vegetables helped prevent scurvy, which soldiers learned weakened their bodies and depressed their spirits. They picked berries, apples, and pulled up vegetables from local farms. Some even identified medicinal herbs they recognized from the domestic manuals. Shelter. This was a big one. In order to mitigate exposure to weather and miasmas, Soldiers constructed elaborate shelters that varied according to the season and materials on hand. Explained to Massachusetts infantrymen, I must make my bed. Here's how he did it. Put a handful of leaves down on the ground in our tent, throw a rubber blanket on top of them, and cover ourselves with a woolen blanket and sleep as sound as we would in the softest bed. They often lofted their beds high above the ground to avoid that Contaminated wastewater that would drip into their tents. But certainly, soldiers preferred a roof over their heads when possible. Um, So, particularly when they were ill or depressed, soldiers would straggle um, to seek shelter in local barns, churches, or civilian homes. The last one I'll mention here is insects. Um, Soldiers did not recognize insects as disease carriers, they found them irritating nonetheless. So, eradicating lice. Flies, mosquitoes, etc. became a prime objective in the ranks. Soldiers did so using smoke from fires, they drained moisture from their camps, and they boiled and cooked their clothing in an attempt to, to escape their constant companions. Wrote one Texan, our plan was, when the lice got so thick they were unbearable, to make a fire and hold the garment over the blaze and from the heat they would drop off If one was well-stocked with big, fat fellows, it would remind him of popping corn. (laughs) Now, you may have gleaned that the science behind self-care was imperfect, but the methods were fairly sound in preventing disease. Um, You know, for instance, lice carry typhus. Um, Flies transmit bacteria, mosquitoes carry malaria, so they were actually preventing themselves with contact with things that would make them sick, even by our uh, modern understandings. Of additional note was the discomfort some soldiers experienced when taking up such work as laundry or proper cooking for the first time, which they had once considered the domain of women and African-Americans. Private John D. Billings' memoir captured the cultural shift best. It may be asked what kind of a figure the men cut as washerwomen? Well, some of them were awkward, but necessity is a capital teacher. soldiers were not operating in a vacuum when they practiced self-care. They tried to recreate pre-war networks of care under the new circumstances of army life. They collaborated with fellow soldiers, forming messes to share food, seeking resources in groups, and taking care of one another in their tents as nurses. Sometimes they would assist each other in leaving the ranks to secure care at a private residence or to go to hospital. Because they knew each other from home, family members often pressured soldiers through letters to take care of each other and to report back on how their health was faring. They also relied upon civilians at home and near the front. So again, correspondence. Family members from home would receive requests and send things like food, clothing, utensils, and advice. Some soldiers even wrote letters to local chemists or physicians asking for advice, help, or a recommendation for a furlough. Most important, though, was the mental effects that letters had on soldiers' spirits, and this is sort of hard to describe, so I'll, I'll read to you how one man put this. I hardly know why I take my pen uninspired to write you, unless to provoke an answer, for letters are all I have. So in this kind of nebulous way, Um, Writing home was a connection with loved ones that would recover faltering spirits. Soldiers often took refuge in civilian homes where they could receive the personalized care they were used to. Um, Even Union soldiers sometimes sought solace in Confederate homes. Uh, Oftentimes they would do so in exchange for a fee um, or for an exchange of services, but nevertheless they could receive care in a Confederate home as well. And finally, newspapers. Uh, Many soldiers served as newspaper correspondents during the war. Um, Newspapers transmitted um, advice on self-care and, most important, recipes for cooking. Uh, The US Sanitary Commission, as well as surgeons, claimed that poor cooking was the number one cause of soldier illness. Now, who practiced self-care? Well, soldiers who practiced self-care generally most soldiers practiced some element of self-care right Uh, and there were certain certain um, restrictions on um, you know how much self-care you could practice some had to do merely with personality Uh, what i mean by that is for some folks when faced with an obstacle the response is to curl up on your tent and put a pillow over your head and you know and give up that certainly held true for some soldiers Um, but in most cases most soldiers Um, address these sorts of problems with a desire um, to be active and to seek out ways to combat um, some of the illness that they were experiencing. There were also, of course, structural reasons that um, affected whether or not one could practice self-care. For instance, cavalrymen on horseback had the easiest time practicing self-care because they were so mobile. Stonewall Jackson's troopers were famous Um, for straggling for what they called the French furlough, Um, sometimes up to four weeks at a time, they would slip out of the ranks on horseback, go home, um, receive some TLC from their family members, and then slip right back into the ranks. And I have to tell you, those men demonstrated the highest morale of any soldiers that I looked at. I wonder why. Um, So as I'm saying, there were certainly limits on how much self-care an individual could practice and was willing to practice. Speaking of limits, from the command perspective, the unfortunate truth of self-care was that it encouraged straggling, individualism, and lack of discipline, which ran counter to military goals. At the beginning of the war, straggling was not considered too serious an offense because discipline was loose amongst the volunteers. Many officers were volunteers as well, still learning regulations, and did little to discourage straggling. Furthermore, the uh, official regulations uh, were not clear on how to punish straggling. So the punishments were fairly minor in the beginning and more embarrassing, like being forced to wear a barrel shirt um, or go on extra picket duty. As 1862 wore on and commanders believed themselves critically deprived of soldiers in the ranks, and they're not kidding, um, sometimes they would be straggling to the tune of 20% of their force at a time in 1862, therefore they cracked down on the offense. Some individual officers practiced more severe punishments, like bucking and gagging, pictured here, and that's of course tying the hands together, slipping them over um, the knees, and gagging the mouth, sometimes with a bayonet. It was painful and unpleasant. The most common punishment, and most effective, I believe, was to deprive soldiers of pay. Some, such as four men in Stonewall Jackson's ranks in late summer of 1862, were actually executed as deserters, even though they claimed to only be straggling in search of shoes. Commanders did not consider that straggling had health benefits. Rather, they believed that it showed lack of dedication to cause and was a sign of cowardice a charge against character that was so severe for 19th century Americans that it's almost hard for us to understand today. Soldiers, however, argued they didn't lack dedication. They were acting as seasoned soldiers and returning to the ranks healthier and with higher morale than when they'd left. This was a tension that was not resolved over the course of the war. Despite command's efforts to diminish straggling, straggling for self-care reasons continued throughout the duration of the war. Now to close, so we have some time for questions here, surviving the environment of war was a matter of life and death that consumed the majority of soldier attention when not engaged in combat. Soldiers responded to perceived and actual environmental threats by devising self-care techniques rooted in their antebellum experience, giving themselves a better chance of survival. Make no mistake, Civil War soldiering was a miserable business, and yet under the circumstances, Confederates and Union soldiers proved remarkably resilient. Thank you. Uh, in crowded areas like Richmond or Washington, where you'd have troops, uh, prisoners, refugees, all sorts of uh, folks burning coal and and wood, uh, to what extent, what was the atmosphere like, and to what extent did that affect health? Yes, an excellent question. So in some of these crowded areas um, where there were a number of fires, right, soldiers were cooking, they were... Um, using fires for other purposes as well, um, and where you had prisoners and folks you had picked up along the way, how did this contribute to health problems? Um, It certainly made health worse. Um, And again, in an area like Richmond, the Peninsula Campaign, you have a a slow, a sluggish rate of campaign. Um, So when you're on the move, um, you you tend to send prisoners elsewhere, they're not necessarily gonna come with you. Um, But when you're stuck in a place uh, of course, this just means more kind of festering bodies, and prisoners often received care and supplies that was of a lesser quality um, than the armies, which you know does make some sense on, at this time, um, according to uh, the regulations. So, um, as far as the atmosphere and the kinds of um, you know things that soldiers would, would would they be coughing? Would they experience um, those kinds of effects? Um, they would. They didn't they didn't tend to describe um, the fires being bad unless they were in winter camp. Um, And in winter camp, they'd forge these kind of special chimneys to try to uh, get the smoke out of their living quarters and these sorts of things. And they'd play practical jokes on each other and try to explode each other's chimneys and those sorts of things. Um, But certainly the more people, the more sluggish, um, the worse health became. Could you give us an idea of what the daily rations for each soldier was? Did they have milk? Did they have wine? Did they have uh, <laughs> cornbread, bacon, things like that? What did the average soldier eat during the day? Yeah, it's an excellent question, and it um, varied considerably according to the campaign and the time and the place. Um So, you know, as is traditionally known for Union soldiers, hardtack um, was a common staple, and that's a kind of cracker. For those of you who haven't seen it before, it's like kind of rather like a saltine. Um, Some of those were really just hideous. Um, They were still issuing hardtack that had been made for the Mexican-American War in the 1840s. Uh, Some of them were infested with mealworms, and some of the soldiers would just go ahead and eat the mealworms and say, that's a little extra protein. Others were, le- were more disgusted. Um, so that was kind of the staple, um, I would say, for Union soldiers. On the Confederate side, um, cornbread was more standard. Uh, then you had a whole range of rations. Bacon, fat, vinegar, sugar, um, flour, uh, fresh meat, salted meat. Um, as I mentioned, there were scurvy outbreaks on both sides. So. Vegetables and fruits were not being issued to these armies in the early phase. By July, when scurvy had manifested, it takes about three months or so to manifest, uh, they started issuing fruits and vegetables as well. Um, a lot of times they issued what were called desiccated vegetables, which essentially were little hockey pucks. of. Um, I'm not even sure how they treated the vegetables to get them into that state, but the soldiers despised the desiccated vegetables, so it varied.
0: What happened after 1862? Did uh, things get better?
1: The answer, this is a, it's a complicated question and the answer is yes and no. Um, There were a number of health reforms on both sides, particularly for the Union, um, you know, that um, technically should have improved conditions. And I do think that soldiers got used to interacting with surgeons and hospitals and those became less frightening. Um, So a relationship developed and that that changed. Um, But things like Jonathan Letterman's ambulance evacuation system, which was excellent, right? It helped remove the sick in a timely manner. Um, When that actually passed through as legislation, it had an effect of lowering the number of ambulances available to the Army of the Potomac. So then there was a critical lack of ambulances in 1864. So there's, there's a lot of give and take in how things are improving. Soldiers continued to practice self-care throughout the entire war. Um, That didn't change. I was glad to hear that they had scabies back in the Civil War. I thought they'd invented that for us in World War II. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, to be honest, um, we have to guess, as Civil War historians, um, about things like scabies. Um, A lot of the way the diseases were categorized um, are very confusing and hard to sort of measure up against um, modern day standards. They had um, innumerable uh, fever categories, and probably most of those fevers were actually malaria, um, but it can be very difficult. They have, you know, remittent, intermittent, etc. Um, all of these different categorizations for diseases that we have done away with because they don't make sense anymore. Um, so things like scabies, they called that itch, um, but, I th- but we're pretty sure that that's what was happening. Are there any statistics on how many men would go into combat who were very ill? So Civil War statistics. Uh, unfortunately, they're always very unreliable, and you should never trust them. Uh, we can really only use them as kind of you know um, vague uh, generalizations. Um, So the problem with ill soldiers is um, reporting. Uh, Many of them in order to glean if they were sick or not, you can't go to the official records at all in many cases, um, in the Confederate records in particular, Um, or they were turned away from sick call, they weren't acknowledged as being ill, but if you read their account, they're very, very sick. Um, They just hadn't presented in a way that this, this, or they hadn't gone to the surgeon at all. Um, So being able to figure out How many men went into battle ill um, would be very difficult to do. Uh, But what I found, just kind of anecdotally, I can't give you a a statistic on it, um, is that many men went into battle incredibly ill, especially with diarrhea. And one of my favorite stories was a soldier who said he was terrified that he would have an accident during a battle. But what he found was that combat cured him of his diarrhea. (laughs) These poor guys. It was not easy.
0: Could <laughs> I ask a question? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what advances did, especially military, did the military take out of what their experience was in the war was? Did this help to organize treatment, or did they not learn anything?
1: Again, an excellent question with a very complicated answer. So I'll, I'll just sort of touch the tip of the iceberg here. Um, The Civil War completely changed American healthcare forever. Um, You come out the other side of the Civil War with bureaucratic um, healthcare, with um, people now going to hospitals, um, with traditional medicine making a comeback, um, but traditional medicine also evolving. America was quite slow uh, behind Europe on medical advancement, so a lot of the um, you know, sort of germ theory and the discoveries leading up to that took longer to take root um, on our side of the pond. Um, things like the US Sanitary Commission, which actually had been incredibly helpful to the Union side during the war, uh, were uh, disbanded in, in after the war was over and looked upon, frowned upon by the military because it's civilians meddling uh, with the military sphere. Um, Things like the Red Cross, uh, which the the European community um, adopted um, kind of the beginnings of in 1863 and four, Um, it took much longer for us to come around to this kind of um, intervention. So it's sort of, the answer is yes, the Civil War transformed American medicine um, on the path toward uh, what we would say from a modern sense, the better I suppose. But I think we also need to be critical and say, Um, A lot of the soldier views about health, um, which may seem kind of folksy um, to us at this point, the kind of connections between mental and physical, we're coming back around to that in the modern era and and seeing the wisdom um, of some of these kinds of 19th century approaches to medicine. So hard to give you a satisfying answer, but there's a start.
0: I was just going to make the comment that when you were talking about the of problems with the hospitals, about dealing with Mm -hmm. the regulations and the bureaucracy, and then the things about if the soldiers were not deemed sick enough, they were were sent off and sent back. Mm -hmm. The thing that popped into my head was it's very reminiscent of what we were hearing this past spring Mm -hmm. about the problems with the VA, and it's like Mm -hmm. nothing ever changes or something.
1: (laughs) And this is why we all should study history, right? (laughs) Maybe one of these days we'll learn from the past.